we love pastors and we love missionaries. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I tell students that I'm, hey, I, and I will be, I'll be teaching in Mongolia. It'll be my third time back. Mongolia, they get excited about that. Or, or I've taught in Vietnam, some of these other places. That seems valid. But if you say I, I'm teaching in Waxahachie, mm-hmm. it, just, it just doesn't quite have the same right. feel, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the challenge. Is that in <clears throat> is that in Mongolia? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sounds like it might be just a little south. Right, right. <laughs> and welcome to another episode of the Learn By Doing podcast. I'm your host, Sue Brooks, and today I am so excited because I have an amazing guest with me, and his name is Dr. Bruce Rosal. Hi, Dr. Rosal. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you for coming. I appreciate this. Oh, I'm, I'm really honored. I'm excited as well. Yes. So, Dr. Rosal, you are at Southwestern Assemblies of God University. Yes. Yes, and you're the chair of the Bible and Theology Department? That is correct, both yes. the undergraduate and the graduate departments. Yes, and so that's a cool role. It's it exciting. is. It is an exciting role, something new, something I never thought I'd be doing, so oh, it is really? exciting for me. No, I never really imagined that I'd be doing what oh. I'm doing. Oh, well see, to the person who's only ever known you doing that, that comes as a surprise to me, but yeah, I didn't know you when you were 12. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, right. well, what did you think you were going to be doing? My plan always to be, was to be an airplane mechanic. Mm-hmm. I, my background is in the automotive world, actually. I spent about 13 right. years working in automotive, and that was a lot of what put me through school as well. Okay. But when I got saved, that God just radically changed my purpose and focus. Wow. That, I forgot, you have talked about that. I yes. remember being in class with you. So, so listeners, I got to take a class with Dr. Rostall about, it's been a little over a year now. We're going on two, I think. That's correct. I did not go to SAGU. So SAGU is Southwestern Assemblies of God University. It's in Waxahachie, Texas. I said, Waxahachie, Texas. I said it right. That's right. We got to get that correct. <laughs> yes. So I did not do my undergraduate work there. I went to a public university, got a degree in psychology, but my my plans changed as well. So over the course of many years, I think it was about 14 or so, I knew that I was being called to study um, Bible and theology. And so I took a class. I wanted to take an on-campus class to see what that was like at the graduate level. Um, with And I ended up taking one with Dr. Rosedahl. So what was interesting about this class is that it was undergraduate and graduate students. And um, I got to see, I, for, for me, it was three different perspectives. So I got to see what it was like to be a student at SAGU from a student perspective in the classroom. I already knew on, online what that was like. Um, and then I got to see how, oh, as a parent, you know, I'm thinking my students, yes. they have an interest. My students are, my, my, I'm sorry, my children. My children are getting older. They may be there one day. So I looked at it through the eyes of a parent, but then also an aspiring professor. I, I want to know what it's like. How I love teaching. I always have multiple ages. And so I got to see Dr. Rosal in the role of professor, how, the way he did things. And so what I saw as a student was, wow, these students are really cared for. He really cares about my questions. Uh, as a parent, I thought, yeah, I feel totally safe bringing, sending my children here. This is definitely worth it if they're going to be cared for in the way that I have been cared for and the way that I have seen him, you, Dr. Rosal, care for the students here. And then the third was just taking the cues from you as a leader as you teach God's word and you break it down for students who have questions. 
and the way that you pace yourself and um, you're never shocked by a question and you're very thoughtful in your answer. So that's my experience with, with you as a professor and, and being in your class. I'm glad here is a good experience. I remember yeah. us having conversations mm -hmm. about uh, you were asking some questions, how, I, how do I approach answering questions or particularly ones that maybe you don't have a direct answer for. Uh, one thing I'm really pleased to hear is I think sometimes there is a concern that when students go off to a university of any type that they're actually going to lose their faith. Right. That uh, even at a Christian university that we're there, if you will, challenging all of their, the way they grew up and the, uh, the stories they've heard and their religious commitments. And for us, it's just the opposite. What we want to do is for students to be grounded in that faith. We want them to own it and actually not make them weaker, but make them stronger. And so it is a challenge as a prof because you want to push them. Yeah, you're challenging maybe set ideas that they haven't thought through, but you have to do it carefully because you, you, you're not trying to shake the foundation, you're trying to build it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not, not like you're breaking it down, but you're making them look at that ti those tiny little foundational pieces so they can actually build them stronger. You, your Absolutely. mom and dad told you this, or you, your, your youth pastor told you this, and, but, but here's a little more depth to it. Absolutely, so. and, and that becomes really important because we, we and, and boy, this is definitely at the heart of Southwestern and the profs that are professors who are there, we, we know our role in the academy is to help train and prepare students and help them think, but we're deeply committed to the local church. And so mm -hmm. we have to be really careful that as we're helping them think through that we are supporting our pastors. You know, yeah. men and women who are out there serving faithfully, we're not in competition with them or we're not trying to put them down. We are supporting what they do. I mean, both as a parent or, or as a pastor, you think you've given your life to see a child maybe who's been, who has grown up in the church their whole life, and then you send them off to a school. Mm -hmm. They need to be nurtured and cared for. We take that very seriously. Yes. Well, yeah. And I, I, and I can tell, and as such a neat, I feel like I'm in such a neat season of life where I could tell all three of those things. And uh, I actually watched you handle those things very carefully. There were, there were a couple questions I remember from some students who may have had a different denominational background. Yes. These questions do not make or break the faith at all. And I just want, but I happen to know the Assemblies of God um, thinks differently about some things that yes. some of the, the, the student in a different denomination thought. And, oh, I was just so impressed. You, you were so loving. I remember a, a student in particular, I don't know who it was, but I just remember that there would be frequent questions and, and the way that you handled that as a professor truly was that you were not going to undermine something that, that did not make or break faith. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it does come through. We, obviously the Bible is our authority. So mm -hmm. we're, we're always yes. going to go back to that. The, the challenge, or I shouldn't say challenge, but for me, not growing up as somebody's of God mm -hmm. and actually coming to faith when I was 18 in a in non-denominational context, then I'm working there, then coming to the AG later, and then doing my doctoral work in historical theology. My background is such that I, I view things more from the historic faith. In other words, mm. there's one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, I am an Assembly of God minister. I'm here, obviously, by choice. It's what I believe. I affirm our doctrinal statement. I'm very comfortable with that. But that doesn't mean we have to be divisive. We can, right. we can respect other beliefs and, and try to understand where they're coming from, yet that doesn't mean we have to necessarily back down on what we believe, but we can still be respectful mm -hmm. and learn from others. Yes. Yeah, I love that. You mentioned that um, history. You have, yes. that's, yes. And I've heard you talk about that a little bit, how much you love history. I 
when I was uh, high school, college, even up until early years in parenting, could not stand history. I really couldn't. And then when it came time to educating my own children, um, I homeschooled them for a little bit and I found a curriculum that was really historically based. And it began to click with me that often we have, we learn our biblical history, maybe (laughs) in Sunday school and in church, hopefully. Um, And then we have our secular history but they're never really meshed in a lot of our practical world. And, but the truth is, they all, it's all in line. It, it, they're that not separate correct. histories or the same thing. Yeah, we need to see how the church is working in context and what's taking place, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so suddenly I found myself being in, extremely interested in history. And I remember a student of ours uh, a couple years ago saying, uh, it, it was through a New Testament class, and saying, I just really don't like history. And I said, well, your uh, your faith has has a basis in ancient history, so try to learn does. to really like it. See you think you of how like much it. of the Bible is historical. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about the historical books; it's just there. Uh, some might be surprised to know that you know, although I love history now, and I know as a professor, students always kind of categorize you because obviously you have your doctorate, your professor, and they kind of kind of assume that that's maybe how you came out of the womb, right? <laughs> right. <way. laughs> but my background was very non-academic. And so I mm-hmm. struggled when I first started college. I, you know, my, again, my background was really music and mechanics. Those mm-hmm. two things. Either I was going to be a mechanic or be a great drummer. I was not a great oh, drummer. Oh, a drummer. Oh, okay. You were <clears throat> yeah. not a great drummer. No, I was <laughs> okay. not. I thought I was until I heard somebody who could really play. And I realized, <laughs> oh, my goodness, this is yeah. not me. Uh, but when I actually, uh, I often tell students, when I first started at a community college, my very first class, it was English, like most people have to take. And my wife told me this later, because she knows it probably would have destroyed me at that point. She read my first paper, and she told me later, she said, you know, I'm not sure this, this boy's going to make it through college. Oh, my goodness. That's, I mean, wow. it just was not it's my... It's nice that she didn't say that to you. No, it is very nice. She knows me pretty well. <laughs> hey, the... wives, take heed, or future wives. <laughs> That's listen <right>. to that, yeah. <laughs> but I tell students that because it wasn't my background. I didn't have a strong academic background. But I did have a heart, I really did. And I had a lot to overcome academically, but I was really driven because of what I had been through, which pushed me into theology. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure where uh, initially that love and passion came, but I know it was really pushed because of some bad experiences. It really, it, it's why theology to me is not just academic, it really is a passion. Right. Because I've seen what will happen where bad theology can really hurt people. And so, yeah. So. That, Academics wasn't my background, really, and it, it, it kind of developed in it. Now, I've often wondered if that's why it took me so long through school. I think I just needed more time than most to process and heal and understand. Mm-hmm. And so it because was a long journey. Yeah. yeah, and it was because of bad theology, bad experiences. It was, yeah, just uh, uh, both. Uh, after being saved or a- before? After or being before? saved, okay. yeah, after being saved. The parachurch ministry that we were part of, was one that was born out of the 60s, and so it had a lot of that flavor of many of the positive revival movements that were taking place. Always young people. Again, mm-hmm. it's always 18, 19, 20-year-old people. They're part of these movements, which is wonderful. I mean, the, uuh, you know, I think of some of the movements today, it's so similar, the passion and the fire, mm-hmm. the commitment that are, are in uh, the hearts of the young people, and you love to see that. Unfortunately, there was bad theology. And yeah. Christian, I mean, there are Christians, there's no question, but uh, when theology gets warped and our perception of God gets distorted, it does distort our Christian walk. And that's what happened to us. And there were also some structural things in terms of it was very heavy-handed leadership. 
Uh, it's something that's called the shepherding movement, which doesn't really exist today, mm-hmm. but the practice still remains. And so that, it just it caused a real crisis for me as a, a young believer being mm-hmm. reared in that, not knowing the difference, basically being told that if you ask a question, that's rebellion. Oh, wow. If you question whether something's yeah. biblical, that's rebellion. Mm-hmm. You have a spirit of rebellion uh, when maybe you're just trying to understand. And so you're for me, the study of theology was a, a process of trying to work through some of those issues, and uh, and that just took time. Hmm. You know, I just recently was listening to um, to a podcast where a leader was interviewing another leader, and and I think he didn't actually say the name of the movement, but I think it sounded like that's exactly what it was because he got saved in that in that in the '60s, and it yes. sounded like a, a real heavy authority, like a just the authority was just a little bit too heavy handed. It, um, it was pretty common during that era. There okay. was there was an official movement, but also you know it, it permeated. And so today, even though the official movement's gone, we still have situations where uh, sometimes it comes from. Uh, you know, I always want to be careful because I'm not church bashing or bashing pastors. Right. You know, as a general, godly men and women love their people and care for them, do a great job. Mm-hmm. And nobody's perfect. I mean, when I pastored, you know, you look back and go, "Man, why did I do some of the things the way that I did?" But here we're talking about clearly abusive situations where they're, the way that they, they will use their position or their title to control and manipulate individuals, and it really harms people. And what happens is it's a pretty common scenario where people will leave the church then, and they're not even understanding why they feel the way they do. They just, uh, one, they maybe feel that God has abandoned them or that God is... God is like what they've experienced in church. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this is a, still a common issue today. And it's actually, surprisingly, probably the number one thing I have students come to my office for is that issue. Wow. They'll come in and talk about all sorts wow. of questions. But probably the number one issue that I have is students wrestling, wrestling through this issue because they've heard my story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's when you find somebody who has been through it, there's kind of like, oh, they understand. Your kindred spirits. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So and are these typically your undergraduate students as well, or is it a good range of both? It's it's usually undergraduate. So they're young. The point of, I'm asking is like they're young. They're 17, 18, 19, and correct. they've already experienced a type of a spiritual abuse or bad, really bad. They have. And, wow. And when they've it's talked with guess, others, yeah. the you know the tendency is to shut people down and say, well, you just need to trust. Yeah. You just need to you know, submit is a key word. You need to obey. And, of course, those are all biblical concepts within proper context. The challenge is when they've been in unhealthy scenarios, it's really hard to trust. And for somebody who's never been through it, you might think of it like a, if you think about a puppy who's been abused, I mean, really been physically beaten, we're not surprised that when you go over to pick up that puppy that it cowers or it runs. We go, well, of course, look how it was treated. That's what's happening with these, with these students. Interesting. And so they, they may sit in chapel, but not engage. Mm-hmm. They may go to church, but not engage. How do you trust anybody when you've trusted before and yet it hurts? Oh, my goodness. And so it's a, it's a process of healing and, and how not to, to recognize that God is not the way he's been portrayed. Mm-hmm. And that just takes time. It's, it's a healing process. Well, and, you know, it's interesting in, in the way you even describe that. Number one, someone hearing the word spiritual abuse might think that's a little extreme. Come yes. on, really, abuse. But the way you have just described it, that, that puppy who's been abused and, and retreats and, and things like that, I, it seems like a completely appropriate word. 
It is. In fact, I asked uh, some of our counselors, because that's not my background, I so appreciate their training, and I said, would it be appropriate to describe this as a form of PTSD, post-traumatic mm -hmm. st stress syndrome? And they said, oh, absolutely. They said, it's a different form. You don't want to you know, disparage you know, military individuals who've been in physical battles. But we use that for individuals who've come out of abusive homes, a wife's out of abusive relationships. And so this is a, you know, this is not just meaning they don't like the church or they disagreed with something with the pastor or something. This is, I mean, we're talking about something significant where they've really been hurt. Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. And I think the second thing too that I'm getting from that is that, that in your role as someone who can teach Bible and theology to a student, it's almost a healing type of role too, not just an informative. It really is. And, yeah. and particularly I would say with the introduction to theology class, which is everybody from every degree, every mm -hmm. major, where the real goal is to help them own their faith. Mm -hmm. And I want them to find a comfortable place where they can ask questions and feel like they're not going to be judged for asking that question. And, and that's important because they need to be able to do that so that, that we can bring them back to a biblical perspective and help them think through the process. Yes. In fact, they say that's probably one of the biggest issues for students coming into a college is if they don't own their faith, they leave it. And mm -hmm. so we want them to own it. We want them to think through. And so we're, not, we're, we're really not trying to develop critical hearts where they're you know, sitting back in a church or a chapel and just being hypercritical of right. every song <laughs> and every sermon. And we're not looking for that. I really try to caution them against that because that, that's not healthy for anybody. But we do want them to learn how to open the Bible and look at it as real authority and to test things according to the Word of God and, and yet still respect you know, the men and women that God has put over us to help us and teach us and train us and nurture us. And, and that's a, a careful balance, mm -hmm. how to do that. Yeah, that's true. You know, I think of I think of our students, you know, in the Oak School of Leadership or any student who is a young adult going into ministry with whose intent is to go into ministry, whether it's in the church or in the marketplace. And for, for me as a leader, you know, of this in this group, I do. I, I just I think because because of my role, but also I think my parenting heart, I just there's a little bit of I don't want to say I'm scared, but I'm very aware of the fact that sometimes you feel like you're sending them out among yes. wolves and are they really ready and that is why i think our partnership is so important because you're getting experience not like they're not getting bible here of course they are at the oaks um but but they're getting a real deep process too that's for, that's intentional just for that purpose absolutely which is why i love like you said the combination this it really can't be an either or i think we have right. the best of both worlds by uh one, a place where they can study theology and ministry and even other issues that are not necessarily directly ministry related, and then come to a place like this where they can put it into practice, because then when they come back, they have better questions. Mm -hmm. And it's out in the field where those questions arise when they're talking with somebody and they said, boy, a person asked this question or this happened, what do I do? Yes. And, and that's why I think it, I really love to see the fact of us working together this, the divide between the academy and the church that has happened, unfortunately, I think really hurts us mm -hmm. because yeah. on both sides, if, right. if we in the academy are not connected to our pastors, why would you ever want to send your, your kids to, to, the, to the university? Mm -hmm. They need to know that we're there carrying on and supporting what you all have done. And, and we do, we, we believe that firmly. Uh, and at the same time, 
were a key part, I think, of helping them grow and train and go deeper in owning their faith, which you all are also concerned with as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it really has to be a hand-in-hand thing. But unfortunately, as you know, within uh, our own fellowship, and it's not unique to us, but the challenge has been to not see them as two mutually exclusive things. As the Assemblies of God, we love pastors and we love missionaries. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I tell students that I'm, hey, I, and I will be, I'll be teaching in Mongolia, it'll be my third time back, Mongolia, they get excited about that, or, or I've taught in Vietnam, some of these other places, that seems valid, but if you say I, I'm teaching in Waxahachie, mm-hmm. it, just, it just doesn't quite have the same right. feel, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the challenge. Is that in, Man- <clears throat> is that in Mongolia? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sounds like it might be. Just a little south. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think about your role and all, and all of the professors, anyone who is willing to take that time to go deep themselves, because obviously you have had training yourself to be able to, to turn around and pour yes. that out to somebody else, is that, you know, sometimes I think in the church world, we think that church is the practical ministry and that the university is not. But the way I see all of you over there is that you're actually young adult ministers. Yes. I mean, my goodness, you're engaging the minds of these students who have really hard questions, and uh, they might not come to you to hang out. No, probably not, you know, but they are going to trust you with the deepest, hardest mental struggles that they've had over the Bible, and that's incredible opportunity that you guys have. Absolutely, and I think if most people, if they could see if a camera on our day, mm-hmm. I think most people would be surprised how much time we spend with students, and I mean outside the classroom. Because we at Southwestern have an open door policy, and that's by design. Our students come in and out of our offices all the time. Sometimes they are just hanging out. It's fun. You hear them. Uh, I've got a, a professor, Dr. Hayes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's well-loved <laughs> oh, by, my goodness. by the students. <laughs> Very his, funny. If, yeah, his yeah. Do, if his door is open, uh, they're in there. And the same true with other profs you know, from all the colleges and, that we have there at the school. And there's just an, a, an opportunity for students to come and one for friendships and mentorship and questions that they have. And sometimes they're just life questions. Mm-hmm. You know, as a theology prof, I'm usually getting theology questions. That's just the way it is. Right. Uh, well, that's the tag that, they put on you, right? Correct. That is the tag. <laughs> that, and that's just the role I've got to play, and that's yeah. okay. But you hear them coming in with all sorts of questions and struggles. And, uh, and we get, as you said, we get to be young adult ministers with them. It really is a privilege. And... I can tell you, because you know, we talk privately as profs, there is an incredible sense of pressure that we sense with our role of the responsibility that we have. I recognize every class I step up, both my attitude, <laughs> the words I use, of course, content as well, it does affect these students. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to you know, overemphasize the role. I think it's true of any ministry capacity, mm-hmm. but we're really aware of that. Of, of, of that role there at the school as well. And we want to, we want to honor that calling. Uh, and that's a challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, the scripture says not many of you should presume to be teachers. That's correct. And so, oh, it's kind of scary to think about. And I hate using the word scary. I, this is the second time. Sorry. Sorry, guys. But it is, it's, um, what's the word? It's a heavy, it's significant. It's sobering. It is so sick. That's the word. It is. It Thank is sobering. you for helping extend my vocabulary. <laughs> yes, it is sobering. Yeah, to recognize that as a teacher, I will be held to stricter standard. And it makes sense because, uh, for example, this semester I have 
approximately 150 students in Intro to Theology. Wow. And I'm, there's 150 students, and that's on campus and mm -hmm. distance, who I'm influencing the way they think about God, about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the church, uh, missions, the, the calling that we have, the world. No how, pressure, but everything. <laughs> everything, that's right. <laughs> All the important things. And, yeah. and it is sobering. And I sometimes I'll share that a little bit with students, and they kind of look at you like, you crazy old guy, what's yeah. the matter with you? But <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty introspective. It's just mm -hmm. by my nature. And I, I know I can be a little OC, a little uh, overly protective of, of what I'm teaching, but I'm aware of the fact that it's going to impact them. And mm -hmm. I can't just have material, so to speak. There's plenty of material out there. There's so much, there's so much to teach. That the coming up with material is not the problem. Mm -hmm. The question is, what do they need? How do I make the most of, I've got a semester with them, and most of them, I will only have them this one time. And how can I make the most of that? And that, sometimes I have to step back and remind myself, it's too big a task for me. Mm. It really is. I, it, I can get overwhelmed, and I have to step back and say, God, you have to guide me, you have to lead me. Uh, Sometimes you've been in my class, so you know I'll go on tangents. Mm -hmm. I get Those little, are fun, though. <laughs> a little preaching tangents, and I always sometimes I feel bad. Go, oh, they didn't really come to hear me preach. But then I'll have a student come up afterwards and says, "I don't know why you took time to talk about that, but that's exactly what I needed." Um, one time I, I remember praying before class. It was by this number of years ago, and I just said, "God, if there's somebody here today who just really doesn't want to be back." They really want to be back home. They're just not ready. There's too much going on at home. Just pray you be with them and remind them that you're here with them. Again, you just kind of you pray it. You feel led to pray it, and then a student comes up and says, "That's me." Oh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be here right now. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what's happening in my family, and you realize, you know what, the task is too great for any one person, but, but the Holy Spirit will guide and lead us and you and use us if we'll we'll let Him. Wow. Okay. As a parent of a high schooler who just signed up for Campus Days, All by right. the way, so if you're listening, Campus Days is an event that SAGU hosts where high schoolers can come and visit and That's see right. what it's, it's like. That's right. It's a great time. I am just so pleased <laughs> that you just said that. Anyway, thank you. Can you tell I'm entering a new phase of life? Yes. And that I need help. Okay. So <laughs> do you have, do you, you mentioned the spiritual abuse yes. and that's, a, that's actually a really big topic. I'm actually surprised to hear that. Um, but maybe if I really took time to think about it, maybe I shouldn't be. If you just like go into Amazon and, and you know search for uh, books on spiritual abuse or uh, something within that context, you'll be surprised how many books there are. Now, some of them are, are just people telling their story. Some, I would suggest, are people who haven't really been healed yet. They've, and I don't diminish them. I mean, their hurt and pain is real. When you read the stories, you go, my goodness, nobody should come to church and be hurt the way they were hurt. Mm -hmm. That isn't what's supposed to happen. And so some leave and never come back, and you hate to see that. Uh, but a lot of them, it's a process. Even the book becomes a healing process for them. But you, yeah, if you, if you looked on just Amazon or whatever and did a search, you'd be surprised at the host of literature that's out there. There's, there's sites devoted to that. Oh, wow. And in all levels, some angry at the church. Bitter. It, bitter you can tell they're right. still bitter. No, and they yeah. have no interest in it. Yeah. Others having worked through and have realized you know, what I'd seen and what I heard is not representative of God and Christ and what the Word of God says. And that, that was my story. I mean, just had to, it took time, probably, I'd say probably three, four year process for my wife and I both, because mm -hmm. we both came with the same background. Wow. 
And uh, thankfully, I had a theology prof in my undergrad, this is probably where I get it from, who was very patient with me. He, he had you know, a doctorate from a uh, great school. He was, he was, boy, at that point, probably in the 60s, had been around there forever, was the favorite prof of everybody. He had, he had both the power, authority, and the wisdom where he could have put me in my place every time I came with a question, but he never did. Mm. He, and he, if he did, he would have shut me off. I would have said, yeah, see, that's why you should never go to Bible school. You should never listen mm-hmm. to theologians or whatever. It would have proved your point. Exactly, because you know. I was taught to distrust anybody mm-hmm. in, in the establishment, so to speak. But he was patient. He was careful, and he allowed me to work through. And so it, it took, took about three years of that process. But I would say even today, I'm still in that growing process and learning and recognizing that uh, this will probably always be something I have to watch. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, I recognize it's a, a, it's a soft spot for me, mm-hmm. and I have to be careful not to overreact sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we just had someone um, at the Oaks who was talking about when, when you have a hurt. In his um, instance, he was specifically talking about divorce. Okay. But I think you can apply this to so many things that it is something you, you don't get over things. You, you'll never just get over something, but you do learn how to heal and you do learn how to manage in spite of the thing that that thing happened. Absolutely. So it does sound like that is something that. Absolutely. That and that's where the, the, you know, the promise of God that he can use all things together for our good. Not that he's causing them. Right. But that he can take them and use them. So, for example, obviously I'm not happy of what we went through, mm-hmm. but I've been able to help students who've gone through similar things, which I would have never understood had I not gone through the same thing. And right. So yeah, God can use those things and places us in, in environments where then we can help others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's two parts to this because I was initially thinking it, there's a bit of hesitancy knowing that if a student goes out into the ministry, they may be on the receiving end of that abuse. But then probably I would think, and I think because you model it so well, there's also that understanding that are there going to be students who leave here and misunderstand the things that we've said and become Yes. those types of leaders and that's a possibility that's where the one probably one of the best books on the on the topic is called the the subtle power of spiritual abuse the subtle power yeah the subtle power abuse. of spiritual abuse uh the two authors i think are johnson and johnson there and what i love about the book is one it helps those who've been through the through this area and how to if you will recover and and, and heal and work towards wholeness but then they also, they address an issue that has to be addressed, and this is the hard part. What is it in me that allowed that to take place? Because I have to take some personal responsibility. And then they also have a section that kind of addresses, and what is it that's within a leader, if I'm a leader, that would cause me to manipulate people unknowingly? And, mm. and it's one of those things where you kind of step back and go, you know what, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I, for example, as a professor, I recognize particularly on a campus like ours uh, or any university, profs can have a certain role. And if you're not careful, it can become the Piper syndrome where you, you're always working to gather students around you in your position, the way you think, and it's your little group. And it can be pejorative and almost mean-spirited towards others. Mm. And that's not a healthy thing. In fact, I, I get nervous when I feel like students are <laughs> maybe looking to me too much because I'm not the ultimate authority. I want yeah. them to look to scripture. And, and I recognize it's the role we play, but you have to be really careful because that can put you in a position to where if we're not careful, we can end up abusing that position mm-hmm. and manipulating or hurting 
and you have to be really careful. This, anyway, that book is a great source for people. That is good. I want to revisit that in a minute. Um, I feel like my thought is going to slip my mind. Okay, but sure. You, I feel you just gave such a good leadership principle. I mean, this is, I mean, when we talk about wanting to lead others, that is, it is so important that, yeah, we don't, sometimes you get a gathering. Yes. Sometimes you become the one people want to spend the time with, and you are the one who has all the answers. And and the whole time, what we're supposed to be doing is pointing people to the word of God, Absolutely. having them seek the, the Holy Spirit, what he would have to say. Um, and so that, you know, it's interesting. I think we know that in a pastoral role, uh, but it is so true even in that teaching role in the university setting. It really is, in both sides. And, mm-hmm. and, and we know that good, godly leadership for men and women to lead the church is so important. Mm-hmm. It really does affect the church. And to be able to do that in such a way that is Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, uh, and yet using the gifts and calling we have, that it is a, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so back to the book. Yes. I'm, I'm just curious if this is um, part of any coursework required reading for anyone going into ministry, or if you handle that in a different way. I, I do not know if it is. I, okay. I, you know, <clears throat> in my classes where I'm teaching theology, it's usually not. A, oh, because you're, you're the more, um, the text, like in the text. Right, systematic theology yeah. and, and, and those type of courses. And by text, I meant the Bible. Correct. Cor- 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 <laughs> so correct. those of you listening. That is correct. Uh, so it may be possible that it is addressed in things like, I'm, in fact, I'm sure it is in terms of pastoral leadership and some of the other courses that are offered where they provide you know, good models for the students and how to, to pastor and lead carefully and kindly. Mm-hmm. You know, we, as you know, one of our core values at the school is servant leadership. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge because you know, it's, it's much easier to say I'm going to serve you than it is to do Actually that. do it. That's right. And that's <laughs> yeah. true for everybody. Uh, yeah, that yeah. is true. I mean, to actually put somebody else's desires above my own you know, in a healthy context mm-hmm. is a challenge. And of course, what is marriage? But preferring the mm-hmm. other person and loving and serving them same thing there. So it becomes a, uh, a really important concept of servanthood leadership. Yes. A- and because you, you're handling the student, not handling, but you know, you, you get to be blessed <laughs> to be able to minister to these students who have just stepped away. If we're, we're talking at the undergraduate level, if we're, yes. if we're speaking of that, a lot of them have just moved away from home. I'm free. I can do what I want. And then, you know, but there's structure, there's rules, but there's so much life training. It is one of the biggest life transitions that a person makes is, is when they leave home. Absolutely. So you, so for you to be a servant leader, I mean, it's true. I can't imagine some of the uh, uh, maybe reaction to things that are not even a reaction to you, but maybe a reaction to what they came from yes. or questions or even just testing the waters where you, where you might think, do you really, do you really have to test the waters right now in that, in that way at the Bible college? <laughs> do you That's need right. to really and, do that? Yeah. There's so many things that they're facing at this age. And you know, one of the big challenges that often happens that people don't think about is sometimes when they're coming to the university for the first time is when family members are facing incredible crises health wise or loss oh, of job. Yeah. And so we often see where students are there in the classroom and you're going, why can't they concentrate? Because all they're concerned about is their home. Mm-hmm. They're concerned about what's taking place. And I know this even sounds silly, but this is reality. For some, it's a loss of a pet, mm-hmm. but they always grew yeah. up with. And then oh, also yeah. now they've lost a pet. And I mean, They're missing oh. a piece of home now and they'll never get to go back home Correct. and see that. Yeah. So the, I don't have a pet, but I just feel like that is sad. <laughs> it <laughs> like, is. And I'm, I'm, I'm an animal up. lover, so you know, oh, I, yeah. I totally get that. That resonates with you then. But, but yeah, just there, there's all sorts of challenges that they face at that moment. And as they are growing into their field, their studies, the longer they're there, they get a little bit more difficult. Their involvement with the church, 
places like OSL where they're getting involved with so many different ministries that are taking place. Yeah, it's it's a, a unique challenge for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially especially when they do go into that role. I actually have, if I can, yes. every now and then with the podcast, I like to to ask a question that someone else has asked. We have a student named Joe who is currently in ministry with okay. children, and so she's you know she's with kids week in and week out. An, an amazing girl. And let me find her question because here's here's one of her questions, which isn't like a heart. Ah, no, it is actually. I'm going to say it's not a heart wrenching question. But when you have a heart for children, and when you have a heart for the Lord, and you and you know that the the Holy Spirit can fill children, yes. and that they can receive His baptism as well, and to see that not happen, that actually can be heartbreaking. And so the question is. How do I respond when a child asks me, why did God give my friend a spirit language, but not me? And that is a tough one. It's a tough one for adults. <laughs> but, <laughs> sure. but when it comes from children, of course, the, their innocence yeah. is what makes it really hard, particularly when we see in their faces a, a genuine hunger and desire. Mm-hmm. I think it becomes key. I mean, it's always hard to say one direct answer because I think every child's a little different. Mm-hmm. But I think being able to help them think through and say, look, you know, uh, God is the one who baptizes. We can't make it happen. I, as a pastor or children's pastor, I can't make it happen. All we can do is come to God and pray. And I, and I think that's true in so many ways, not only just as they're praying for spirit baptism, uh, but what happens when they see their friend healed and they're not healed, or uh, God's provided a job for their other family, but not for their family. And I mean, those are issues that we're helping them train very early on. How do we how do we wrestle with the fact of sometimes what seems to be unanswered prayer? And we know that God always is listening, always hearing, but the struggle we face even as adults of sometimes when he says no, sometimes when he says yes, sometimes when he says wait, mm-hmm. or sometimes when he says I'm doing something different, that's hard for adults, let alone for children. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then this, the heaviness that can come in is that they're in their formative years too. And so that I feel that is a heavy question for a college student to have to answer. Um, You know, with the pressures, am I going to get this right? Is this children going to shut down their faith? Don't be scared, Joe. I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but no, I think these are things we think through and that's why they're really important questions. I, I think so. And pointing them back to the character of God, that God never fails. Mm -hmm. He's never going to fail them. And, you know, what's sad in this whole part of the story, if we can just put it this way, is where they're supposed to learn a lot of this stuff is in the home. Because in, yeah. if they have a stable home and they see a godly mother, a godly father, some of the challenges that we have are, should be modeled there where they go, look, I know that whatever I face, mom and dad are going to be there. I have that comfort. They, you know, I could mess up royally, and you know what? I still know they'll be disappointed. They'll be hurt. They might even be angry but they're gonna be there for me because they love me uh, that deeply. And that is that picture of what a child should know about God's love for them. But what happens if they don't come from that type of home? Hmm. And then all of a sudden they don't have the picture of stability and uh, unconditional love. And that, and that makes it really hard. And so when we talk about, I think children's ministry in particular, when you talk about the breakdown of the family, and I, I know that's the society we're in today, mm-hmm. it, it's more than just the, some legalistic thing around you know, what do we believe about, you know, marriage and sanctity of marriage? It's affecting family and children the way they perceive even who God is. It's really a big issue. But I would say, particularly for Joe, mm-hmm. I would say uh, that one of the best things she can do is, is just 
to help the child know, you know what, here's what we do know. God loves you, and he sees your heart and your hunger, and sometimes we don't know why he delays, but we do know this, he's hearing, he's, he's listening, he's hearing, and let's just keep praying. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, well, how long do I have to pray? Sometimes we don't know, but right. we just keep praying. And would you say too, I, I just feel, I, I have a background in working with children, with young children too, in that I think there's something important about being very positive. We're not diminishing the yes. question. We're not diminishing hurt. Now this might've just been a very matter of fact, hey, why did my friend have it, not me? It could have been that. Correct. Or it could have been, why does my friend have it? And I don't have it. We, we don't know, but I think, and that's why I say we're not diminishing, but I think with a smile, with hope, with optimism, we say, I don't know, but I do know that God loves you instead of, oh, honey, I don't know. Isn't that the worst? It's so sad, you know. <laughs> Almost so, creating despair. Yes, 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 hope. yes. Yeah. I think that's a, the, where we need to be sensitive with children is to, to be hopeful. And, and it's not fake. I Correct. mean, I think if we're living out the faith, we know that there is a hope even when we don't understand. So it's not a fake smile, but it's just a reassuring, I don't know. But what I do know is that God loves you. Because they do want authenticity. Yeah, they, yes. they don't want you right. They don't want the fake smile. They don't want the fake catchphrases that we use, oh, yeah. which 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 hurts. Can we when, throw some of them out there right now? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so yeah, that becomes really important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, that's one thing I'm so thankful for. So many of our churches that do such a great job with our children. I grew up in a different denomination, and one of the uh, things that was characteristic of that denomination was children's sermons. And I'm a big fan. As a pastor, I use them a lot. We, uh, at least once a quarter, would do what's called Family Day. And I know it's different for churches, what they can and can't do. But on that day, is everybody's together. And there is no children's church because everybody's in. And there's a children's sermon. The children are brought forward. And it's just part of it's from my own memories. Mm-hmm. Growing up as a kid where the pastor sits, you know, the traditional thing. He sits on the, on the, on the stairs and all the kids gather around and he tells a story. And, but there was something about the firming nature of that. And I've been to churches that have done that, even involving kids in other aspects of the service. And, uh, and you can see the kids' eyes light up because they know the pastor and the pastoral team really value them. And it does something for the parents. I think our parents loved Family Day more than the kids did because they see their kids, but also the kids are being treated with value. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's just so important. So when I think of people like Joe and others who are investing in kids, they're not just babysitting. Right. And they don't take it that way. It, it, they are really investing in these kids, and I, and I so appreciate what they do. Mm-hmm. I think there's another part to that, too. As a, as a parent who does have, who we, we are raising our children in a, in a Christian home, we are serving the Lord. And I do recognize that a lot of children in children's ministries are not. But there's also an aspect of not undermining the parent, too. Yes. That's an important balance to strike, too. Well, but, and it is. Yeah. Whether it's a child or college student. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Know, how, how to oh, help. Boy. Yeah. Because, you know, they're, particularly as college, they're trying to figure out how do I, there's a certain level of freedom and independence I have. But the reality today is, as you know, many of, of the college students don't leave home till their late 20s, some even longer than mm-hmm. that. And it's not unusual for them to be on the phone with their parents with course selection and uh, just very, very much involved wow. with the process. So it's very different than like when I grew up at 18, you're out. Right. Not that the parents didn't love you, it's just that's just assumed. Yeah. 18, you're out. <laughs> are you going to military school? What are you going to do? You know, it's a little different today. And so, yeah, but having to help them think through the process of, okay, yeah, you have some independence, but honoring father and mother is a command that never 
ceases. And so how to, what does that mean and look like in the college years is, a, is another challenge. Yeah. Well, so I, I like, we, I gave you a question from a female. I have a question from a male. Okay. <laughs> and I think that the question comes out of the heart of um, something recent that was spoken in culture, but frankly, it's been around for a long time, and that's the role of women in ministry. Yes. And so the question is that uh, uh, Clayton actually asked this question, how can we best distinguish which directives in the Bible are more cultural to the time and the people of that period, and then which are actually applicable to us? So the example would be um, covering or not covering our heads in prayer, uh, women teaching in the church. And I'm not saying Clayton is questioning women teaching sure. in the church. I don't think that's the heart of where his question came from. But yeah, we have we have these students, and a lot of them are females. Half of them, probably. Yes, is that that's about is right. That right. We're about fifty fifty. They're female, and and they're wanting to go into ministry. So yeah. And in, and in, in, in and in an informal poll that I've done in my classes from time to time, many people are surprised to know that of that fifty percent of females, about fifty percent don't think women should be pastors. See, we te- not, yeah, we had this conversation. I want Correct. you to continue, but I want to acknowledge. I remember. Yeah, which surprised yeah. me. I, I, I kind of assumed it was somewhat of a male chauvinistic idea, mm-hmm. and, but it's not. Mm-hmm. The ideas are out there. The question is really important because now we're talking about biblical authority and what does the Bible teach, and I want to take that seriously. And I often remind students, if the Bible teaches that women should not be pastors and be in leadership, then they should not be. Mm-hmm. If that's what it teaches. If I really be, believe biblical authority, even if I'm uncomfortable with it, don't necessarily understand it. If I really affirm biblical authority, then I need to go where, where Scripture teaches. So we're not looking to find a way around something. Right. We're looking to go, what does the Bible teach on this issue? So then the question becomes, with a passage like Timothy, where Paul's writing Timothy and says, I, I am not permitting a woman to have authority over a man or to teach a man, but she must uh, learn in silence. And there's a whole context here of the word's not even silence either. That's a whole nother thing. Right, yeah. But, it, but it's a pretty clear directive. I mean, and I think at face value, we'd have to say, if we only had First Timothy as a letter, we'd have to affirm the position that women should not be in places of authority teaching a man, because that's what it says. And by the way, it doesn't say just pastor. So right. it'd be no position, any, yeah. any position, because that's what it says. But the key becomes, and we know this from other passages, you start looking not only from the immediate context, but now go, okay, start looking a little bit broader. What else does Paul say about women in ministry and others of his letters to find out, is this a situational command? Meaning there's something happening uniquely in Ephesus that says, I've got to address it, the situation, and we're going to do it this way. Or is this a universal command that goes really from Genesis to Revelation and is supported? And what we find is when Paul talks about women in leadership, he talks about women apostles like Junia, he talks about Phoebe, Prisca or Priscilla, he called her Prisca, it was kind of a a familiar name, and others, we see women are prophetesses, we see them operating in the gifts. Joel 2 is classic. And that's Old Testament, by the way. That's right. So that's an Old Testament, Joel, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, you have Joel 2, and then you you have the fulfillment on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, that he's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh, sons and daughters, and talks about, and they will prophesy. So there's this this egalitarian anointing of the people of God to go out and be the proclaimers. So when I look at Timothy, I recognize for those that who look at that passage just by itself, they say this seems to teach that, and I get that. But when you look broader, you recognize, oh, it can't mean a universal command 
because Paul doesn't call for that in all places. So I liken it to something like this. If a student were to come to me and say, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm going to a Muslim country. And in a Muslim country, women cannot teach men. You're just not going to be able to. It doesn't work that way culturally. There's no way that it can work. And if they were to ask me directly, should I be teaching men? I would say within that culture and where you're going, you need to be aware that a woman should not teach a man. It just won't be received. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's this universal command or that men are better or smarter or they should be the teachers. None of that's true. As you know, we've got godly men and women who are great in all, in all these areas, but the situation is calling for a specific command. And in Ephesus, we know that there were problems with false teaching. That's clear from the pastoral right. epistles. We know there was problem particularly with women teachers related to Artemis and some other things culturally. Mm-hmm. And so Paul seems to be addressing a specific situation, not a universal command. And that isn't just saying that arbitrarily. We see that because of the rest of Scripture. And so that, uh, you have that passage, and the, the, the other one in Corinthians as well, which uh, talks about them being in silent, go home and, and learn. What's interesting is, I mean, directly before that, he's talking about women prophesying in the church. Mm-hmm. So we know it can't mean what, what other people what are trying people to are say. people are interpreting it to Correct. be. Correct. Mm-hmm. So um, what I would suggest is the, the patriarchal understanding of men only in leadership is something that unfortunately developed much after the, after the fall. And we see Bible warning about mm-hmm. that. But isn't it interesting that in Genesis 1, it actually calls on both, it says that God made uh, humanity in his image, male and female, he made them, and he calls on them to rule the earth. You hear that? If you missed it, there's a really neat feature on your podcast app where you just hit rewind. There we it takes go. it back about 15 or 30 seconds. <laughs> but I think we miss that in our, we, we, we kind of stick to our childhood Genesis creation story. Correct. And we don't really pay attention to those things. We think I learned it a long time ago. There's no need to read it now. I got that. That's an easy one. But those details, are if really we important. fail to yeah, pay attention, we are messing up our theology on women. Correct. Really. And, and we're not denying the distinction, gender distinction between men and women. In right. Fact, what we're, we're actually saying just the opposite. We recognize that we are distinct and thank God for that. Mm-hmm. But that's why we need both in leadership. Because if I know that you and, uh, uh, and your husband, Brian mm-hmm. Pastored, the fact is your two voices are distinct voices. You see things differently and we need both of those perspectives and and so, and not that it always has to be a husband-wife team, because you recognize it. That's We're not ju- always the case. That's not yeah. the case. Not everyone's married. Co- <laughs> correct. And, and the fact is, in some cases, the spouse doesn't want to be in that type of a role. Mm-hmm. But we do need a, a staff that is both men and women for the church really to be healthy, because we bring our unique gifts. And, and that's why I think seeing you know, we, the Joel 2 passage being so classic of where once the Spirit came on just certain individuals— and in the Old Testament, it was men and women. We see Deborah and, and others, but in, Joel says, but now there's going to come a day mm-hmm. upon all flesh, daughters and sons, handmaids and handmaidens, and there's this egalitarian anointing of the Spirit of God for us to go wow. forward. That is exciting. It is it's exciting. It's just exciting to, you know, you make that connection with Old Testament in Joel, New Testament fulfillment in Acts, talking about the last days, and it's like we are in the... We are living in these days. It's yes. a really exciting, exciting time. I want to I wanted to say thank you as a woman. Thank you 
as a man for clarifying that. Um, the conversation that I alluded to earlier that even I had, I told you one time that I grew up in a denomination, the Assemblies of God, totally affirming of women in ministry. I mean, it always has been. And um, it's just never been a problem. But for some reason, um, I was I didn't always run in that circle. There were other there was a long span of time where I was in a in a different yes. teaching, right? And so I kind of got a mix of both. And then just honestly, sometimes even though something is said to be believed, it's not always seen. But I think that the reason I'm going to go a lot of places with this. I think that a reason a lot of times we may not see a woman in ministry is because culturally we haven't still broken through that. And we have women who think, I cannot. Even though I know biblically this is okay, culturally this has been difficult. Correct. So we're yeah. not seeing it. I, I think I think you're right. And for those who've never been in a church where they've seen men and women operating in their gifts and being used of God and seeing how healthy it can be, usually what I will often hear are the bad examples. And so yes. they'll hear, yeah, and, yeah, and so always. it's always the bad examples. And what's interesting, if, if you think about it, when somebody says, yeah, I've seen this, I've seen somebody do this, and this is how horrible it was, and you go, oh, so now we're going to base our theology off experience. Mm. They're claiming it's scripture. No, it's really experience wow. that is pushing them towards an unbiblical mode. In fact, what usually shocks people, it actually shocked me. I did not realize that within the Christian church, and we're talking about major theologians, Augustine, uh, Aquinas. Calvin and others, it wasn't simply that they didn't believe in women in ministry. They actually taught that women did not bear the full image of God equal to men. Yes. I remember when I learned that because you mentioned that and I thought, are you kidding me? Yeah. I I, I just was shocked because you go to the very beginning where it says, uh, I mean, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image of God, he made them. And then it makes it very clear, male and female. He made them, and that both men and women carry the full image of God. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm going to be honest right now, because I think a lot of people may be thinking these, this too. These are some of the major theologians that have helped to shape our thinking and our faith. Yes. And so, I mean, there's something to be said for, what is it? What's, I get sayings wrong all the time. Eat, chew the meat, eat the meat, spit out the bones. There we go. E- either way, <laughs> you've right. got some meat in your mouth, but what you want to take out is the bones, whether you're chewing it or eating <laughs> That's it. That's right. But um, when you hear something that extreme, uh, you kind of do want to just throw it all. Like, did anything you say matter? But I think I know Augustine, wasn't he one that really explained the Trinity in in a way that... Well, in so many things, yeah. I mean, he, of course, the most influential theologian of that era, for sure, and so many good things. But you're right, that doesn't mean that everything he said was great. And what surprises me is today in particular, I'm talking about just our world today, there is a feeling that if you support women in ministry, you're just giving into the cultural values of today. Mm-hmm. Oh, and feminism. Correct. Mm-hmm. That we're just trying to um, make the gospel palatable for, for uh, our world today, when in reality, it's culture that drove them into this wow. position. Uh, now, I want to be fair. I recognize that the, some who, who are complementarian, they don't believe women should be in these capacities, believe they have a biblical basis for that reason. Right. I, I, right, think they're, right. I think they're incorrect, and that's where the debate hermeneutically needs to become where we look at the text. And that's okay to have that debate. Mm-hmm. And I always tell somebody who, uh, if, if, if a woman is feeling called into ministry in some capacity, you, you shouldn't go to a church that doesn't believe that and cause a split. Mm-hmm. We're not looking to do that. Right. That's, that's not a healthy thing 
find a place where you can go and, and is welcome and served. And you hate to even have to say it that way, but you, we're, we're not suggesting we're trying to cause splits or trouble. Mm-hmm. But the reality is this idea that, that has developed that somehow in an egalitarian view is simply curtailing to culture is just not true. It is going back to the very core from Genesis all the way up, the conviction that God uses men and women equally. Wow. That is, I, I, I really like that you that you brought that into light, that it, it really is through the study of reading the Bible that we get it, not, yes. not the culture. It truly is people examining scripture, pouring over it, and really spending so much time in trying to understand what God's word said. It's, it's not just this casual, yeah, we're going to cave, we're going to water down Correct. faith. The other thing too, I think is interesting is you mentioned, if you look in um, the letters to Timothy, you have this one snippet of a culture. Um, whereas if you take the Bible as a whole, we see that, yes. you know, the one thing. Also, if you look in Timothy, but actually really deep dive into the cultural context. So you're looking at it, yes, and by itself, yes. But if you actually really take the time, I think in the same way, you can see there was there were some unique things going on. Like you mentioned, Absolutely. Artemis, they were, they were their primary um, deity was a woman. Correct. Their creation story was completely backwards. And their creation story, I think, a female was created first and then male. And so then when you hear Paul say, because God made Adam first and then Eve, knowing that it sounds like it's more a correction of their creation story. The, so there's some correct. little details. There are some big details that are important. And a lot of times people will say, well, look, the fact that he appeals to the creation story means it has to be permanent command. Well, again, the larger context says no, but even if you take the creation story, what's interesting is Paul uses the same argument when he talks that women should wear veils. And nobody's calling for women to wear veils. He says, mm-hmm. again, because it's a, it's a type of argument that he's using that they would understand, but he's not, it's not a universal permanent command. It is very much a cultural situ- situational command. Yeah. I think that your modern day um, example of going into a, a country or a, a religion where it's not permitted, um, so then you'd respect that as such a such a simple understanding yeah, of I that. So thanks for sharing yeah. that. Yeah, I know that was really helpful for me uh, when I heard. I remember hearing you say that one time. Um, let's see. Oh, I have a question. This is cute. I have a question from my my son Aaron. He's okay. nine, and um, we won't be able to answer this, but it's cute. He said, "Well, unless you know something, I don't. you know a lot. I don't. Well, but we'll, we'll see." How- <laughs> I'll I'll say it the way he worded it, and okay. then I'm going to rephrase it for you. I, th- I think you might get it, but how many years in birth apart were Matthew and John? So how far apart in years? Not their, not the, uh, not the scripture, but the actual men. That's a great question. I actually would have to look. We know that John was one of the youngest of the apostles and living the longest for mm-hmm. sure. He was one of the you know one of the last ones. To the, Most longevity. That's correct. I mean, <laughs> yeah. probably die, dying in the 90s at some point. Wow. Uh, that is not 1990 AD. <laughs> no, that's right. That's <laughs> that is 90. Not 90 that's right. <laughs> and, but yeah, you know, off just top of my head, I wouldn't not know exactly the, the difference between the two in terms of their age. It's a great right. question. Yeah. I know. I love the way kids think. These are, I think it is people who think like this. That's why we know what we do about the Bible because they're willing to ask the questions. Well, wait, Correct. when was Matthew born? When would we have born? When, when would he have died? When would this culturally have taken place so we can put it? These are, it's a great question. And you love the fact that they're even thinking about that. I know. You know, because at that age, I was not thinking about anything (laughs) like that. So the fact that they're even thinking about that is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So 
we have an idea, Aaron. We just don't know exactly right now off the off the top of our heads. That's right. But it might be an answer that that we could find a an a, um, approximate answer to. That means a kind of an idea, but not an exact answer. So that was a great question, buddy. So the the students who are coming in, and you've been a professor for a number of years. Yes. Have you noticed some change in what they're coming in knowing or the things that they're facing? Absolutely. I, I've been at Southwestern 20 years. This okay. is my 20th year. And oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. And <laughs> I taught for uh, both adjunct and then full-time about nine years earlier at what used to be called Latin American Bible Institute. Okay. So it's, uh, we were pastoring at the same time and taught. The, but let's just go with the Southwestern time frame. There, def, there definitely is a change. There, uh, I would say particularly this year, these past couple of years, there's a positive change. Not that the other was bad, mm-hmm. but I've, I've even mentioned to my class that people are noticing a genuine hunger amongst the students wanting something more. And that's a positive mm-hmm. thing. There is, uh, it's not a contrived spirituality, spirituality where there is just hyped up, you know, during worship or something like that. There, there really is a growing hunger to learn, to grow, to serve God. Uh, with that comes a certain uneasiness. And what I mean by that is not only is there a genuine hunger for God to do something in in their own lives and maybe for God to do something new. I don't mean unusual, but just fresh, if we mm-hmm. might maybe use a better word. But that also is where they're also willing to question established beliefs. And that can be good and bad. Now I think obviously I always think it's good that we question and we think. But some of the let's say the foundations of the faith could possibly be challenged if they're not given good reason biblically mm-hmm. why this is what we believe. Because, you know, there's not the strong, if you will, denominational commitments or, hey, because somebody has said this. And that's actually, again, a good opportunity. This means we have the opportunity to own our faith. Right. And so that's why we can't be threatened by the questions. But it does mean, in many cases, that they're coming without as strong of a foundation mm-hmm. on some of the core beliefs. And I think there's many reasons for that. But... Uh, it, but it's not a rebelliousness. That's the key thing. I, I think many, many years ago, I'd have to walk into a class, almost feel like everything I was going to say was being challenged. Uh, not disrespectfully, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, computers are up, they're reading other people, and, they, and so you say something, but this person says this, and it's a different dynamic. Yeah. That's not this group. This oh, group, interesting. Yeah, this group is, they want to think, they want to engage. They're not just going to accept it because it's said, which is good, but there's a hunger. And I... I, uh, I appreciate that. Um, but with that hunger, I think the other challenge is they are very busy. Hmm. There, there is hmm. just never a let up. And I wonder, you know, our phones are always with us. Earbuds are always in our, oh, yeah. uh, on us. And, uh, you know, the constant communication that is there. And yet, it, at some sense, even though there's all this communication, the loneliness, because texting is not a relationship, right. as you know. And... Uh, and not that that's bad, but mm-hmm. so it's this interesting dynamic. And so I really feel like we're in a unique spot at this point with these students who have a genuine hunger. And I think we can draw upon that to help them uh, really pursue God in a greater way. And I'm hoping, is this possibly the precursor of another real move and awakening, uh, you know, however you want to define that. Mm-hmm. But 
some stirring. Dare you say revival? Yeah, dare we say that word? That we're <laughs> treating we so many different word. things to people, but oh, I know. absolutely awakening, but revival, awakening. whatever it is. Uh, I, you know, not a prophet. All right. <laughs> okay, right, for right. sure. But I, there's a hunger there that I'm excited to see. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that's being confirmed in a lot of people's hearts. I think that in my position in working with with students in in my colleagues here at the Oaks and just and just looking around at culture, I. I think there's something to to that for I think sure. So. Yeah, I think we're about to see something really, really neat happen in these young students. So, what would you what maybe if you had some advice for? I, I kind of see you as a prep and ascending okay. place, right? A prep yes. and ascend. So when you send them out, knowing that they, um, well, of course they could be doing many things because they could be earning many different degrees, right? They might Correct. be teaching, they might be in business. It doesn't matter. It could be lots of things. But if they're going into ministry, say we have some pastors listening who may be hiring some students, do you have some advice or counsel to them in, in, in the way they regard these students and lead them? Sure. I, I think, uh, one, they are, I've never had so many students come say, I want to be mentored. I mean, that's just almost standard today. And not just to me, I hear it across the university. There is a hunger and desire for mentoring and leadership. There may be a little reluctance for taking on leadership. And what I mean by that is where many years ago, the idea is you're going to go out and you're going to, you're going to go plant a church. You'll go over and you'll break the new ground. You'll be the senior pastor, whatever that might mean at that level. Today, there's more of the, I want to go work under somebody. Mm. And there's a certain safety to it. And there's obviously yeah. blessing to that in terms of the learning and the mentoring that can take place. But it does mean that we may have trouble getting students to go into the smaller communities where you will never be known, you'll never be put on uh, a podcast, really, unless you do your own. You're not going to be asked to speak at the the conferences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe your book is not being published, so to speak. But but we need people to go in every area. And so there is a, a, I think there's a openness, a hunger, desire. I think that's all positive for pastors who are hiring. I think they'll find... um, Students are workable in terms of wanting to learn how to work on the staff. They're not, as a general, not going to be disagreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, they are younger or, and are in the sense of that they are familiar with having everything available, all the best. I mean, I, I, would, I, I was sharing with you that I bought some sound equipment recently. I realized, oh my goodness, these students can do, for just a couple hundred dollars, can have such amazing equipment Right. In their home. Right. And they don't even need that. They, do, they just do it on the phone. For, mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's amazing. And somehow it looks and sounds really great. Correct. And we have the same tools or better. And we're like, how is this not, not yeah, it, great? It's amazing, the creativity yeah. and the knowledge. So they bring all that as well. So mm-hmm. it's a challenge. But, um, but I think the other thing for me personally, this is, uh, Chris, I'm reflecting my bias here, is I'm concerned if students don't get themselves grounded in the word. And there is a big push towards getting out and being involved in a lot of other things, right. which we want. Mm-hmm. But if they don't have a good biblical and theological foundation, uh, they're going to get out there. And that's where we see trouble having, happening, either doctrinally, they don't have the, the knowledge to discern truth from error. They don't have the historical knowledge to go, oh, wait a second, we have seen this before. Yeah. This is not new. Right. There's a new label, but it's not new. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there are some challenges as well. Mm. Um, lead, leaders who may want to, who feel like they want to 
enhance what they know as well. So let's, let's say someone's in leadership at a church or, or anywhere and they want to enhance their biblical knowledge. What are some practical ways? I mean, you can open the Bible and read it, but there is, there is obviously, yes. you know, this is why you're here. There's obviously something to be said for having someone walk alongside you who has studied context, who has studied even language. So, um, by the way, I feel like I'm going to go off topic here with my question, okay. but you, do you translate Greek every day I, or, or I, do you try pretty, to? Yeah, pr- most days. What I do is, uh, and this is part of, for my own health, spiritual health, the, you know, being in chapel for 30 years, mm-hmm. <laughs> which always shocks students, but yeah, you're, I'm in chapel for 30 years, uh, teaching. Yeah, students stuff don't complain day. about chapel. Dr. Rosal's <laughs> right. been in chapel for 30 years. And then I think of those who've been there longer <laughs> right, I and mean, even right. more. The... Uh, how to keep my own heart fresh, keep my own spiritual vitality. Uh, the, that's, that is a challenge. So one of the things I, I've always been doing Bible reading, and my wife and I do that. We read separately, but we do a, a joint reading program, okay. which allows us to talk about it. But I'm the morning owl, she's the night owl, so we do it at different times. But like, so we do, we do different things. Like right now, we're actually reading through our Spanish Bible, New Testament. Now she's far more, you know, she's fluent, she can do it. I'm, it's slow for me, but we'll do that part. That's just basic Bible reading. But then what I do is separately is I also translate uh, from the New Testament each day. And so like right now I just finished Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done, of course, a lot of the Pauline. I've done Revelation, Hebrews. Revelation. Yeah, that was an interesting challenge. Wow. Uh, the Gospel of John recently mm-hmm. completed. But I, and basically what I'm doing is I'm just translating and sometimes, like with the pastoral epistles right now, I'm actually, once I'm done translating, I may do a little bit more detailed, uh, what's called an exegetical outline, trying to capture better the structure of what Paul's trying to say. Sometimes I go deeper. Sometimes it's just translating. Sometimes I get on tangents. Mm-hmm. I, I was, when, when I was translating uh, the book of Jude, I became enamored with this concept of the faith handed down. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how much that imagery is used even by Paul, that you've got, again, this body of belief that is handed down, and we're not to alter it, twist it, manipulate it. We pass it on faithfully. And so sometimes I'm chasing rabbits like that as well. Wow. But yeah, I That's do. That's a good rabbit trail to chase, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I do I, I'm most days. I mean, there's days I miss, but I, I try to translate every day. And that has really helped me spiritually when I'm doing my regular Bible reading, but this forces me to look very closely at, at each, each word, because I'm not a... a I'm not a Greek scholar, and I know that, but having had the Greek, it really helps me to uh, just stay fresh in my walk with God. I'm going to be honest. I forgot why I asked you that question. I think I just wanted to talk about the fact that you can translate okay. into Greek. <laughs> but okay, wait, earlier, so guys, before before we started recording the podcast, I'd asked Dr. Rosal if you could speak Spanish, but you cannot, but you're reading from a Spanish Bible. Yeah, and I'm cheating as well on that. Just so you know, what oh, I do, I do. I, I can read. Uh, I was better when I was within the Hispanic district for ten years and was working. I actually led Spanish worship, but music is different than you know mm-hmm. speaking for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I did actually lead bilingual worship for years and at an all Spanish congregation for a couple of years. Wow. They, they needed help and and the uh, you know, the people were really patient because I mean I couldn't say a whole lot. I could lead the songs, but it's not like I could lead in terms of say things too much mm-hmm. but they're very patient well yeah me. how did you exhort the congregation so you can sing in spanish but you don't really speak it so how did you did it, you it was a challenge or did you just do it in I, English? I, they they pushed me and tried to get me to preach one time in spanish that was a disaster oh no <laughs> but you know did they ever ask you again <laughs> they actually did oh. <laughs> they're very, uh, very patient uh, most of the people there in that particular church 
actually were uh, a lot of first generation. So Spanish was their first language. Wow. And they would work with me. They were very patient with me. But I loved the family. Mm -hmm. I loved the family feel. There was always a meal after every service. Got to love the meal. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Of course, fantastic food. But yeah. but yeah, they were very patient to work with me and help me learn and practice. And of course, when you're in it, it, it mm -hmm. comes a little bit better. But um, yeah, I just never quite jumped past the hoop of being able to become fluent. They always teased me that the pastors did that, because uh, here I am this lone Anglo, I'm, I'm not fluent, everything's done in Spanish, that they were gonna take me down to Mexico and drop me off in the very southern part of Mexico and I, then just make me find my way back. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, because <laughs> you know, gracious. my first name is Bruce, there's no Spanish equivalent. Right. Forget Rosedahl. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just, there's just nothing that works, you know, to help with the Spanish. But Yeah, that would have helped a lot. Now your wife does, she does. Speaks, okay. Yeah, because okay. my wife is Hispanic. She grew up in San, in San Antonio, and uh, she's you know she's good. She's done bilingual education, and so and she has that ear for it because she grew up around it. Her grandmother only spoke Spanish, um, but yeah, it's a uh, I those are cherished years for me. A lot of mm -hmm. students are surprised not only that I was licensed and ordained within the district, that our church was actually part of the Hispanic district, but also a lot of my doctoral work was on Hispanic Pentecostalism. That's right. So yes. a lot of students don't know that side of me. When I first came to eight, uh, to Sagu, Southwestern, everybody knew me as the LABI guy because that's where I came from. Mm -hmm. As time has gone on, more students are just kind of surprised that this Anglo guy has any interest in it. So. <laughs> that's neat. Well, so uh, so for the for the pastor or the leader who cannot speak Spanish or translate into Greek, right. <laughs> but wants to dig a little deeper. Yes. Um, what, what are some suggestions that you have? Maybe take a course here and there or? Boy, there's so what? many things. I think, I mean, and this is be an obvious statement, but if you have a hunger for God's word, you're going to find a way. You will find a way. And that's mm. key. That's true. If it's a legalistic thing, it, it, it just won't last. But if it's a hunger, whether it's a podcast that you listen to, somebody who leads you through, mm -hmm. um, and there's so many, as you know, that are available out there, whether it's using basic Bible study tools. And of course, you know, we've, that's one of the key core courses at Southwestern for a reason. We want people to learn how to be able to study their Bible on their own and use good skills. Uh, they could take a course like that, but there's also really good books. I'm a big fan of K. Arthur. K. Arthur wrote a book on how to study your Bible. And this is written for lay individuals, not people with formal training, but it's not a simplistic book, if I put it that way. In other words, it's oh, okay. not, it's not like it's, you know, so simple, you know, who needs to read this? It's not easy reading. Really. No, no, not, not no, it is easy reading, but it's oh. not simplistic. In other words, okay. she's not just stating the obvious. She really is going to help develop skills, help an, an individual develop skills on how to study the Bible and how to do it practically. Okay. You, with your Bible, how can you do this? And so if somebody doesn't have, uh, let's say, any formal training, mm -hmm. uh, K. Arthur is just really good. When I was a pastor, I actually uh, taught a class on hermeneutics, and of course, I teach at the grad level. I didn't want to do that to them. That that, right. that would scare people away. Right. And so I I brought out K. Arthur's book to help me make sure that my lingo and my instructions, because she's good. I mean, she knows the gradual level hermeneutic stuff, but she communicates it well uh, at a local level. And so I would use that as a guide. But I would say, uh, and this is really a passion for me. For, let's say just say for pastors. Let's just start there. If they're, if they're not making the Word of God a priority, that's a real concern. And here I have to be really careful because this is a growing concern for me. The, the, the 
Internet has made so much available, which is good. There are great tools out there, including ones to help build sermons. Wonderful. We all use sources. No problem there. What has been a growing movement is pastors just taking the sermons off of the net. And I don't mean just looking at them or saying, hey, look, how did this individual approach the text and how did they uh, communicate effectively to the congregation? We all do that. That's good. That's learning from what others have done. But actually just taking it down lock, stock, and barrel and it, either just reading it or some misogyny of it to little changes. But here's the danger. If the person whom they took that message from did not do the exegetical work, you don't know that, that the exegesis is done accurately. And this is happening a lot. As, as, you know, as someone who's traveled through the churches to see, it's happening more and more. And my concern is this. We, in the assemblies, as you know, there's a movement now concerned for how do we combat ba- a biblical illiteracy? Yes. Well, one of the problems is if people are not getting good, solid biblical teaching, both from the pulpit and whatever discipleship means, whether it's Sunday schools, small groups, whatever we're doing, then we're going to have people who don't know the word. And, and so it's, it's really hard to talk because I don't want to sound as if I'm being hypercritical. A pastor, you know, as somebody who's had to preach day in the day, that is just hard work. Mm-hmm. It is hard, hard work. And I admire the godly men and women who do this day in and day out, so I respect them. But if we just take from others and don't do the homework to ensure that what we're teaching, teaching is biblical, then we're just parodying. We're not preaching. Mm. And that's really a concern Say for me. Say that again. We're just parodying. We're parodying yeah. others. We're not preaching. Parodying, not and preaching. the command is to preach the word. Wow. And that, uh, and that, that's just, that's hard work. Mm. It's just hard work. That is excellent advice. Thank you. Oh, you're Thank welcome. you. I don't remember that one. Well, Dr. Rosedahl, we're going to close this out. And now I know you've listened to some of the other podcasts, so you know I've been playing a little game at the end. You know what? I never got to that part, so this is going to be a surprise <laughs> for me. You don't know. I don't oh, know. This okay. will be a surprise. Get to that part. It'll be fun. Okay. Um, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to count to three or count down, whatever. And we're going to have to say, we're each going to say a word that's in our head relating to a certain topic. Okay. And the challenge, so we're going to say at the same time, but if we happen to say the same exact word, then we win. Okay. So far, nobody's won, but this is only the third time. Oh boy. So with Clayton, we sang a song. With Ani, we said a word relating to a thing. This is what I'm thinking. How about a a systematic theology term? Okay. So we'll we'll just get one in our head and say it. And I'm gonna pray that I remember all my <laughs> systematic <laughs> theologies. Hey, you want to explain to the people listening what that even means? Sure. Systematic theology is just where it's theology arranged according to topics. It's, it's pretty think, simple. You are really good at making succinct answers. I would have talked for three paragraphs. I think you know that because you've read my work. <laughs> <laughs> you already know that. You're like, yes, Sue, I know. <laughs> I read your work. Just say it in one sentence. Yeah, so it's arranging these theologies by topic. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> Ready? Ready. Okay. I'm going to count down. So, three, two, one. Christology. Soteriology. Oh. oh, you picked the one that I probably should have picked. It's because my favorite area. So, yeah, soteriology? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. And then you said Christology? I said Christology. Okay. Oh, we didn't win that one. Ooh, maybe oh, we'll bad. get this one. Okay, ready? I'll count up now. Oh, we're <laughs> going to do another one? Not, yeah, we're going to do another one. Okay. We're not going to play till we win. Oh, okay. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll do about three. Okay. One, two, three. 
eschatology. Oh, we oh. went different directions. <laughs> <laughs> he said bibliology. I said eschatology. Okay, let me think of another one. I got to think of a term, Dr. Rosal. I know you probably have like 12 in your head. How about one for the nature and character of God? <laughs> Uh-oh, now I put you on the spot. You can do God is love. I mean, you know that one? God is love. <laughs> there you go. Okay, hold on. I, I want to kind of pick, I don't know if I want to pick a tricky one or one that I feel like, I do want to pick, I feel like you might, I kind of want to pick a tricky one because it would be tricky for me, not for you, right? Okay. But then I want to pick a basic one because maybe you're thinking that. I got to get into the mind of Dr. Rosedahl. Hold on. I'm not sure that I can even get into my mind. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> I think this is, I think what I'm about to say is one. Okay, one. Okay, two. and what are we doing? We're just doing another systematic. Okay, uh, let's see. I need to pick here. Okay, one, two, three. Ecclesiology. Oh, is ecclesiology? That's one study of the church. Yeah, yeah. doctor yeah. of the church. And absolutely. you said anthrop anthropology, Listen doctor of humanity. This. Okay, I just feel though that we won because all our words ended in ology. They do. They absolutely do. <laughs> so how about this? Which is pretty easy when it's systematic theology since they're all they ology. They all end in ology. Yeah, that's there we the go. that's the point. I really kind of rigged the game so that we would win. Dr. Rosedahl, this has been really fun and very enlightening and I thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. We hope to have you back for sure with some of these fun topics. Everybody, thank you for listening to another Learn by Doing podcast. We hope that this was a blessing to you and that you join us again next week. Bye, guys. <laughs>